Hey guys, how's it going? Oh, well, good. This. I'm Scott Horton. Hey, uh, this is my Q&A thing. I'm sorry I haven't done one in a long time, have I? I owe ya. Uh, so I'll try to get to a few answers and questions for you today. Uh, first of all, the book. People keep wondering about the book. One guy said to me, hey man, I kind of donated some money for your book project, and I'm kind of wondering if that's even real or what, because... See the camera? Alright, well, look, it's done. Fact. Check this out. That's the first proof in my hand right there. I got it. Uh, but it had a bunch of mistakes. And also, well, it's too late for the book to take part in the current debate over the current troop escalation. I'm 99% sure of that. So, I kind of have to wait. And they keep kicking the can down the road. I mean, the book is only really ready to go to print just right now anyway. Um, they were supposed to announce the new strategy this week and the, the troop numbers and how many they're going to send, but they've put that off, although I'm reliably told that they've only put it off for another couple of weeks. So I think I'll go ahead and get the last little bit of tinkering done uh, with the text and the layout and the cover art and everything, get one more proof sent, and then once... The Mattis, uh, you know, review comes in and Trump makes his decision uh, of how many troops he's sending. I guess he's already delegated to Mattis. So once Mattis makes his decision and announces in a couple of weeks, then I got to figure out which ending to stick on it because I've written a couple of different versions of the end. And then it'll be ready. And yeah, it's about Afghanistan. It's about why not to have a war there anymore. It's called Why Not to Have a War There Anymore. Scott Horton writes about Afghanistan for a year and a half. And in fact, that's not even true, right? I mean, I only, well, I've been writing a little bit at a time, but mostly the first draft has been done for half a year. Almost. Uh, it's taken me, you have no idea how many times I've reread this book. And I've had, you know, an amateur editor and a professional editor helping me. And we've been over this thing a thousand times. I should have never tried to write a thing. I am quantitatively, provably, scientifically, a horrible writer. And some of you might like the book, um, but that will probably mostly be due to my editors or to your ignorance of the proper use of the English language. Um, if, if you are as poor at it as I am, then you might not notice, but boy, uh, don't ever write a book. It sucks, man. It's terrible. All right. Anyway. So it's soon. And then you guys, you better like it. That's not a very good sales job, is it? You better like it and you better buy a lot of copies to give to everyone you know and care about. And make your library buy one. All right. Um, questions and answers. I'm going to start with the most recent first because it got my uh, gears turned. I was thinking about it a little bit. A guy on the Twitter, he says to me, he says, Yeah, I want to know about the Battle of Fallujah. Huh. I wonder why he wants to know about the Battle of Fallujah. It's certainly important. Uh, I guess I should have asked him. I'm curious uh, what it was that got him wondering about that. Because it could be a lot of things, right? It could be that his cousin fought in it or something. And you know what's extra funny is, so I started thinking about how I was going to answer this. And then hours went by before something completely random jogged my memory. 
I know what it was. I was reading about Afghanistan and whether they're going to send mercenaries to Afghanistan. And I was reading about how James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, blames the Blackwater mercenaries for getting him into so much trouble in Fallujah. And of course, it was James Mattis that ordered and led, uh, not from the front, you understand, (laughs) Uh, but he was in charge of the initial battle of Fallujah. I'm not sure if he was in charge of the second one in the fall of 2004, certainly in the spring of 2004. Or you know what? Not certainly. I may have that mixed up. It was one or the other, maybe both, that James Mattis was in charge of the Marines in attack in Fallujah there. I guess I should have looked that up before I started recording this. Anyway, it doesn't matter because what's really important there, and I wouldn't want to detract from any blame that Blackwater deserves, but before Blackwater, uh, the Blackwater guards were uh, lynched, basically murdered and, and hanged from the bridge, the Marines had already opened fire on a protest there where, uh, you know, basically government employees who'd all been kicked out of their jobs and had no prospects of any employment were holding a big protest. And I don't know if maybe there was a shot fired on the other side or not, but the Marines shot into the crowd and killed a bunch of people. So tensions were really high there in Fallujah anyway because of the Marines. But so then guess what happened? The Israelis with a uh, missile strike, an airstrike. I don't know if it was from a drone or an F-16. I forget now. But anyway, uh, they murdered an old man in a wheelchair, Sheikh Yassin, who was one of the leaders of Hamas. And you might say, yeah, well, he was a terrorist. They had to kill him and everything. Yeah, well, if you read Andrew Higgins in the Wall Street Journal or Richard Sale in UPI, then you'll find out all about how the Israelis deliberately encouraged the rise of Hamas as a right-wing religious alternative to the secular commie PLO. Sort of like the Brits, the MI6, and the CIA had encouraged the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood beginning in the 1940s. Or at least 50s. I think 40s even. Um, Anyway, when the Israelis assassinated Yassin, that caused a big riot in Fallujah. And you see, it's one Uma. It doesn't matter where the uh, Europeans drew the lines. It's sort of like when Texans and Californians and Coloradoans get upset when somebody attacks New York City and Washington, D.C., you know? Get it? So they attacked this Hamas guy in the Gaza Strip, and that led to a giant riot in Fallujah, where the Blackwater Guards... And, uh, and you know what? The Blackwater Guards were probably causing trouble on their own uh, before this, too. But they were the ones targeted in the riot, and they ended up being murdered and lynched. So that was, you know, good old... Our only ally in the Middle East, our most bestest, greatest friend in the whole world, Israel, who you can't name a thing that they ever did for us. They certainly can't fight in any of our wars because we fight our wars for them over there. But it's supposed to look like it's not, right? It's supposed to look like, oh, yeah, no, this doesn't have anything to do with Israel or anything. Hey, Israel, you stay out of it. Funny politics there. Funny uh, Funny alliance there where we fight their wars, but they don't fight ours. We're the empire. They're the satellite. And who's zooming who? I know. Isn't it funny? So once the Blackwater Guards were lynched and murdered, then George Bush... And the government, not just the Marine Corps 
and the, the forces on the ground in Iraq, but the political government of the United States said, oh, well, this will not stand because we are the tough guys. And I don't know. If, I don't think this was the exact phrase. Bring them on. I don't think. I think that was earlier. But that was still the attitude. George Bush literally said, "For those of you who are too young, oh, you think we're worried about the security situation? Well, I say, bring them on." He said, "For a bunch of other kids getting sniped and killed." He actually did. You know, years later, at the end of his presidency, say he regretted that phrase, that one word. None of the actions, none of the orders he gave, none of the decisions he made. But he did regret that he had deliberately egged on the resistance that way. But that was the whole attitude. And in fact, General Sanchez in his book, uh, Memories, isn't this nice? Uh, General Sanchez wrote about how Bush gave a big pep talk to the Marines. Kill them, prevail, we will destroy, blah, blah. Oh, kick ass. There's your keywords if you want to Google it. You go uh, tomdispatch.com, kick ass, George Bush. And there's this whole little pep talk. You know, he was a cheerleader, not a jock, but a cheerleader at Yale. And that was his thing. And the generals all thought this was silly because they're just professional killers. They don't need pep talks. You know, they talk to their you know, enlisted men that way, but you don't need to talk to generals that way. And so they thought it was very unseemly that the president of the United States was giving them this raw, raw speech when they were like, yeah, look, we're going to go in there and take care of business for you, boss. Okay. We don't really need a big proverbial slap on the back. So then they attacked and, um, the second one, well, first of all, in the spring, it was the same story in both cases. So they attacked in the spring for a few weeks, and then they called it off. And I guess they wanted to see if that was victory or what. I don't know. But then it was the election year. So they were waiting. And it was really obvious all through the summer. They were waiting until right after the election, and the George Bush was going to launch the second attack. And that was the one where I believe thousands more people were killed, where white phosphorus was used. You know, they say, well, it's not a war crime because under the law you can use it to lighten an area, you know, at, in darkness or whatever. Uh, you just can't use it to deliberately burn people to death with it. Well, yeah, so they still burn people to death with it. And the white phosphorus, what it is, water doesn't put it out or anything, right? It'll burn straight through you. Uh, yeah, it's really ugly stuff. And um, anyway, and they kill thousands of people. But And so here's the thing of it too, right? And George Bush is only George W. Bush could be George W. Bush, man, you know, um, and but he's just like the rest of them, only just to the nth degree. That's what he is. He's the nth degree of the U.S. government in in all their moral and every other kind of blindness. And so they look at it like, yeah, we're going to go in there and we're going to fight the guys that are against us. And phew, we're the Marines and they're the terrorists and so obviously we're going to kick their ass and that'll be the end of that right but then what happens is of course they just made more because these guys weren't terrorists they were just the men of the neighborhood defending their neighborhood the same as you would do the quote terrorists that were um you know aligned with abu musab al-zarqawi and all of that uh there were the slightest percentage of the sunni based insurgency in iraq then and in fact you know, at this point in the spring of 2004, Zarqawi had not even declared his allegiance to Osama bin Laden yet. 
Remember, Colin Powell said that Saddam and Osama are both friends with Zarqawi. So that's the proof that Saddam and Osama are also friends. But in fact, Zarqawi had told Osama, no, I don't pledge by it to you. I don't want to be part of Al-Qaeda. Screw you. And he was hiding from Saddam up in American-protected anonymous Kurdistan in northern Iraq. He, and, and the whole lie... Uh, about Saddam was that Saddam had given him medical treatment, that he lost his leg in the Afghan war and Saddam had given him a wooden peg leg. But that was just Ahmed Chalabi and the liars who would come up with that one. He was a wanted man. Saddam had uh, APB out on the guy. Uh, he was no ally of the Baathist government. And whatever groups, uh, his... Um, Ansar al-Islam, and there were a couple other different names for it, his group at the time was a very small group. And, of course, the military asked Bush for permission to go to Kurdistan and kill him before the war started. They had free reign in Kurdistan, in Iraqi Kurdistan. <clears throat> and Bush refused to do it. They needed that talking point. And they asked him over and over and over again. And, in fact, this particular story is very well reported. I think Jim Mikliszewski at NBC News broke it first, but then it was followed up by just numerous journalists. I remember one time researching this and just being amazed at how many different stories there were developing the story of how the military said, this guy, Zarqawi, could be a real problem for us, Mr. Bush. Please let us go and kill the son of a bitch before we invade and overthrow Saddam. And Bush wouldn't let him do it. Over and over and over again, they begged. Uh, anyway, so then come Fallujah. Yeah, we're going to go in there. We're going to wreck these terrorists and we're going to kill them and then they're going to be dead and it's going to be great. And Andrew Sullivan and everybody said, it's the flypaper thesis. There's this very small, finite number of terrorist, crazy, religious wackos in the world. And once we lure them all to Iraq, we'll kill them all and then it'll be over. And so premise one was wrong. And so the solution was wrong. And so, but what happened in wrecking Fallujah was they created tens of thousands of refugees. Well, where do they go? Well, some of them went up to Ramadi. And some of them went up to other places in the predominantly Sunni western parts of Iraq where they displaced Shia. And a lot of Shia were kicked out of Ramadi and fled home to Baghdad. Well, a lot of Fallujans went to Baghdad too. And that caused some people to be displaced, some Shiites to be displaced inside Baghdad too. And and, you know, one time, and actually a lot of times, but one particular time I interviewed Dar Jamal, and maybe he wrote one particular article that was just perfect about this, where he traced all of the collateral consequences from that first attack on Fallujah and the displacement of those civilians to Ramadi and Baghdad and the different dominoes that started falling down in terms of the sectarian warfare between the Sunnis and the Shia as a result of that and you know leading of course then to the attack on the Samara mosque and the El Salvador option which was where Donald Rumsfeld and the military made a complete and permanent alliance with the Bada Brigade who they were the Iraqi traitors who had fled to Iran and had stayed in Iran from for 30 years from the time that Jimmy Carter gave Saddam the green light to invade Iran all the way through 2003 uh, that was in 1980 um, all the way through um, when George Bush invaded in 2003. Then they came back across the border, uh, back into Iraq to inherit the place on George Bush's heels. In fact, check my Twitter right now. You'll see him talking with Jonathan Landy about how he was there and saw Abdul Aziz al-Hakim, the head of the Supreme Islamic Council, come across the border from Iran into Iraq. And 
Uh, this was the big hit piece um, on Iran in the New York Times this week. Is all about, oh, Iran took over Iraq. Uh, yeah, that's what I personally have been telling you on this show f- since 2004. Since 2004, I was interviewing Juan Cole and Bob Dreyfus about how we're fighting for the Iranians in Iraq. And that was a big part of that was the El Salvador option. You hire these Shiite death squads to hunt down and kill the leaders of the Sunni resistance because, of course, you know, they have the local knowledge. They'll know who to kill. And, of course, what ended up happening was America ended up just supporting a complete ethnic cleansing campaign or sectarian cleansing campaign of uh, the kicking of all the Sunni Arabs out of Baghdad, which, uh, you know, I know there are those who say that, no, it was supposed to be chaos all along. I guess it depends who you ask. Some of the neocons clearly wanted chaos all along. That was why they disbanded the army and abolished, you know, Baathism in the country, outlawed Baathism in the country. Uh, They were trying to create chaos. But the military and the State Department and the actual presidency, I don't think that's what they wanted. Uh, That's just what they got for doing what the neocons told them to do because they're stupid. And so, yeah, I mean, the consequences of that attack on Fallujah, the consequences of, of the invasion of Iraq, the consequences of that Israeli assassination of Yassin, uh, the consequences of James Mattis's assaults on Fallujah continue to reverberate back and forth. You know, because what happened was once the Shiites and David Petraeus were done kicking all the Sunnis out of Baghdad, well, that was their last incentive to compromise with the Sunnis anymore as any kind of power block. And there, there are Sunnis in the parliament, but they don't have any real power or, and or they don't really represent the Sunni population of the country at all. And... All the oil in Iraq is down in the south in, you know, near Basra in completely Shiite held territory or way up in the north in the control of the Kurds near Kirkuk. And so when the Sunnis lost control of the central government, they lost control of the spoils. They needed control of that central government in Baghdad in the middle of the country to steal all that oil money from the north and the south. So once the north and the south were free of Sunni domination, they said, well, we got all our oil money. And we got the capital city, and so you guys can go burn out in the sun and die of thirst and see if we give a damn. And so that was basically what happened. And then, in fact, I'll throw you one more in here. Everybody always criticizes Barack Obama. Not everybody, but yeah, a lot of people criticize Barack Obama for ever pulling the troops out of Iraq. They even said with a straight face, yeah, you know what? George Bush and Dick Cheney predicted this. What? Yeah, that if we ever leave, that the consequences of going there in the first place could come due. So anyway, Obama, yeah, he pulled the troops out, but that's not the problem. I mean, you could say that if they were still there, they might have been able to stop uh, the Islamic State from rolling into Mosul the way that they did. And yet, something tells me they could have anyway. That's a lot of open highway that full of a giant convoy they couldn't i mean you and i both know that they can launch bombers from missouri and have them anywhere in the world and half a day at tops right never mind we got bases right there in turkey in italy in the gulf anyway um but the real sin of barack obama in iraq was the election of 2010 oh well pulling troops out you already know what that means, right? Well, they weren't there anymore. But if, 
now, oh, an election. Now I got to explain it, right? Oh, that's a whole other level of having to learn things. So that's not as fun of a talking point. But what happened was Maliki's party lost. And the party that won the election of 2010, believe it or not, was the party of Iyad Alawi, who is the former Baathist, former CIA agent, former first sock puppet appointed prime minister of Iraq under the invasion. From 2003 through 2004, he was the guy who um, was the sock puppet prime minister. The handover of sovereignty. Remember that? Oh, no, I got that wrong. It was a handover of sovereignty was in, pardon me, it was in June of 2004. And then he left in 05. He was there for a year until they did the Constitution and the election. Okay, anyway, so Alawi, what's interesting about Alawi, well, a lot of things. But one of the things that's interesting about Alawi was he was a Baathist, as in part of Saddam Hussein's government, but he was also a Shiite. And so even though the Ba'ath Party was dominated by the Sunnis and the army was dominated by the Sunnis, um, uh, the upper, what did I say? The army and the upper echelons of the party itself were dominated by Sunnis. The, uh, the Shia were involved somewhat. And the whole place was basically run like uh, Tony Soprano ran the Jersey mob kind of thing. Uh, everybody intermarried in business deals and whatever to try to keep everything copacetic. And so... Um, he was one of these compromised type characters. And the possibility is there that if his party had been allowed to take power in 2010, that that could have been the last chance for reconciliation and the last chance to prevent the um, predominantly Sunni areas of Iraq from declaring independence and falling under the sway of the Islamic State. And yet, what did Obama do? The same thing George W. Bush did. He made a deal with the Iranians to go ahead and keep Maliki. And so, yeah, what are you going to do? You fought a war for <laughs> your enemies. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. It really is hilarious to read that New York Times piece uh, lamenting Iranian power in Iraq as though it ain't America's fault at all. As though this wasn't known from the very beginning. You know, Justin Raimondo wrote an article in, I'm going to say, April of 2003, just as the war was, just as Baghdad had fallen. It's called Iraqi Pandora. I do have a very good memory for this stuff, don't I? And in this article, Iraqi Pandora, he says, what's the Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution, guys? Guess what? They're the Iraqi traitors who've been living in Iran for 30 years and are backed by the Iranians. They have their own army, the Bada Brigade, and they have their own agenda. In fact, you could find an older article by Justin where he mentions the Supreme Islamic Council from maybe even before September 11th. I think there's an article by Romano from like 1999 about Skiri where he says, hey, look, the American CIA tried to offer this group money and they said no. It might have been from it might have been from the Bush years, but it was maybe two years before the invasion of Iraq, something like that. You know, spring of 01 or something. He said, look at this group scary. See, you want to go messing around in Iraq, but you don't know what you're going to get. And then Iraqi Pandora says that same thing. Here come the Iranians. Here come the Iranian backed Shia to take over leadership of the 60% majority population of the country. You think a bunch of North Americans are going to run away with the prize at the end of all that? Anyway, so 
there's your answer about Fallujah. A bunch of Marines killed a bunch of people, and a bunch of Marines got killed, and it was all for nothing. You know what? That reminds me of something, as long as I'm talking about it. There was a famous picture. It may have been the cover of Time magazine of a Marine. They called him the Marlboro Man. His face was filthy with, you know, whatever, dirt and grease and whatever. He had a Marlboro cigarette hanging out of his mouth, you know. Uh, and he's just sitting there dazed from battle. And they got this picture of him. And the right-wingers loved it. And the, the American War Party at the time, the population, you know, the National Review types and stuff, they just worshipped. They used this guy was their poster boy for, yeah, tough guy, macho, American Marine, hero, going to free the people and stop the terrorists and all this. When all he was doing was fighting people in their own town. And then later, that guy killed himself. Because that guy wasn't a cartoon character. He wasn't the Marlboro man. He was some guy named Dave or Steve or Jim or something. And now he's dead. And he didn't die in battle. He died because of the battle. And those right-wingers, they never say, oh yeah, she's sorry for participating in that. Bunch of crap. They just move on to the next one. And, you know, I shouldn't be too unfair about that because I think a lot of right-wingers, maybe if they don't take personal responsibility for falling for it and going along with it and criticizing all their friends and neighbors and family members as traitors for knowing better than them back then, uh, even if they don't take responsibility, it does seem like they really have learned their lesson a lot. And we could screw around with wars in the Middle East forever, never mind the, hum the human rights of the people our government's killing over there. But what's in it for us at this point? A lot of American former war supporters are wondering. And they have good reason to. But, you know, by the way, as far as my little Alawi thing there, I actually don't think he could have been able to make peace and hold Iraq together. And you know why? Because having Alawi in that position wasn't enough. And you know why? Because Barack Obama was supporting the rise of Al-Qaeda and the Sunni-based insurgency next door in Syria. And as Patrick Coburn warned on this show for years before the Islamic State took power, literal years before the Islamic State took power in Mosul, uh, which was three years ago. But for years before that, he said American support for the insurgency in Syria is re-energizing the Sunni insurgency in Iraq. And the groups, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and the, they would call themselves the Islamic State in Iraq by then. They started calling themselves that in 2006. Uh, they're on the upswing. They're coming back. And the, the government ministers in Baghdad are panicked. And they're saying to their American friends, man, why are you doing this? We finally got the Sunni insurgency to chill the hell out. And now... You're re-energizing them again. And, of course, the answer is because empowering Iran in Iraq was a big freaking mistake. It was not what the Americans tried to do. It was a huge own goal. And so ever since then, it wasn't just Obama. It started with Bush. You read the redirection by Seymour Hersh. Starting in 2006, they finally admitted to themselves that we really screwed this up. We really just fought a war for our Iranian adversaries, which not that America has any legitimate reason to hate Iran at all, other than they're independent from the empire. And that's, you know, absolutely forbidden. 
But other than that, they're not really enemies of the American people in any way. But they said, well, we didn't mean to do that, so now we got to double down on whatever Saudi Arabia and Israel want and back the Sunni insurgents against Shiite power. So they started backing Fatah al-Islam in Lebanon in order to try to fight Hezbollah, and they started supporting Muslim Brotherhood groups in Syria, now known as Arar al-Sham and al-Nusra and ISIS, and they started supporting Jandala in uh, in Iran, and even uh, PJAK, uh, communist Kurdish group in Iran as well. And, you know... That was, as, as Obama said to Jeffrey Goldberg in 2012, that's right, Jeffrey, if we get rid of uh, Assad in Damascus, that'll help bring Iran down a peg. In other words, we can't redo the Iraq war all over again and kick all the Shiites out of Baghdad and give it back to the Sunnis, right? Run them all off to Sadr City and, give the, and create a new Ba'athist dictatorship there. Too late for that. So consolation prize. We'll get rid of, they're also Baathists, but they're Shiite-backed Baathists who rule a Sunni, minor, a Sunni majority in Syria. It's a little bit upside down from the situation as it was in Iraq. And that'll be their consolation prize. And of course, that didn't work either. All that ended up doing was what? Empowering Iran even more. As the Islamic State grew up to be such a problem that, oops, that blew up bigger than we wanted it to. They were supposed to take over eastern Syria, not all of western Iraq, too. Damn. So then they had to start the whole war again for the Shia and help the Shia take Fallujah, Tikrit, Ramadi, and now Mosul from the Sunni. And so the degree to which they colonize them and cleanse those cities and keep them as Shiite cities, I mean, I don't know if they really can get the Shiite population of southern Iraq to move or not. But can the Sunnis come home? They have anywhere else to go? And these questions remain unresolved. But if you listen to these freaks now, they say, well, we have to occupy eastern Syria forever. We got to put Marines in there because otherwise there'll be this land bridge of Shiite power from Iran through Iraq straight through to Syria to Hezbollah. Well, that was the deal in the first place. You didn't need a land bridge across Iraqi Sunni stand, they got airplanes, you know. The fact that they added uh, Iraq to the list, that took place back in 2003, 2005, 2010, okay. Um, but they're saying now, oops, we just empowered Iran even more. We just empowered Iran Shiite friends in Iraq even more, so now we have to intervene. Only now they're saying instead of on the side of the Sunni jihadists, now for the Kurds. But the Kurds don't want to rule over anybody but themselves. The Syrian Kurds, for example. Um, one of these uh, freaks was, uh, one of these generals was confronted by uh, Tucker Carlson on TV and said, well, who's going to take over Syria after we get rid of Assad? And he said, the Kurds. But the Kurds, first of all, could not, absolutely could not take over Damascus and rule it. And second of all, they don't have any motive to. And these people are crazy. These people have not thought this through. It's still my favorite, and we've looked for it. I can't find it online anywhere, but I know I saw it because it was such a hoot that the, the a Republican congressman was asked, and this was years ago. This was probably 2013 maybe, about, well, if we get rid of Assad, who's going to take over Syria and rule after that? You know, And it wasn't even, the person wasn't even being cheeky, right? It was just an honest question from a TV hairdo anchor. Like, huh, well, you know, it occurs to me that, like, well, so what's the plan for after? 
you know? And he said, well, we just have to hope that someone will come to the fore. And then that was it. That was his answer, was don't worry about it. You know, it may or may not be Ayman al-Zawahiri or his servant al-Jolani there, the leader of al-Nusra in Syria, but whatever, we'll worry about that when we get to it. Anyway, so now that the Islamic State has been rousted out of Mosul and are being rousted out of Raqqa, um, that just leads to the question of where's the next Fallujah? I mean, they've completely flattened Mosul. Um, they've completely flattened Ramadi. Fallujah, I think, you know, they, they chased the Islamic State out of there, but the Islamic State basically just withdrew from Fallujah. Uh, they held out a little bit longer in Ramadi for it to get smashed you know, harder, but, um, you know, what's going to happen with all the refugees and all the displaced people and all the disruptions and distortions of power and everything that are happening from, you know, Iraq war three now, I don't know. And the Americans are saying, well, we're going to have to keep permanent bases in order to try to limit Iranian power there. I mean, talk about a fool's errand, talk about too little, too late. I mean, Petraeus's surge for Iran was a decade ago. It was 2007 that supposedly the surge worked when all it did was deprive the Shia of their last motive to ever compromise with the Sunni again. And I'm talking about the power factions, not the religions and not the populations. I'm talking about the leaders of the different political parties and whatever. But anyway, so there you go. That's the story of Fallujah. America ruined everything for everyone forever. That's the story. The story is for the rest of your life, there's going to be massive bloodshed and instability. And of course, for the rest of your life, you're going to hear, oh, it's been like that for thousands of years over there. But that's just not true. That's not the real history of what happened. What happened was America did this. And the fact that Baghdad is a completely Shiite-controlled city now, which is the first time that Shiites have ruled an Arab city for a thousand years. Uh, well, to, to quote, I have the quote right here from the Financial Times. You guys use those sticky notes on your desktop? There's a great one from the Financial Times where uh, it's Prince Saud al-Faisal, not Prince Turkey. Maybe this is his son or something, I don't know. Prince Saud al-Faisal, the Saudi Arabian foreign minister, said to John Kerry, as though John Kerry wasn't in on it, Dash, that's ISIS, the Islamic State, Dash is our response to your support for the Dawah. That's Maliki's party. That's the Shiites that America put in power. Um, in fact, remember Jafari before Maliki? He was from the Dawah party. And Abadi, the guy that's in there right now? Yeah, Dawah party guy. So the Saudis are saying, yes, our support for the Islamic State is a response to you putting the Iranians' favorite factions in power in Iraq. So there you go. Boy, that was way too long of an answer, wasn't it? Anyway, don't forget it started with uh, an assassination by the Israelis. All right, now let me see if I can knock a few more of these out. Uh, SHSQA, do you think the anonymous sources... Oh, yeah, that's the hashtag on Twitter if you want to ask me one. Do I think the anonymous sources Hirsch quoted the same people Giraldi talked about on my show? Probably. I don't know. Certainly had the same information as him. 
and certainly far more credible than the accusations against Assad, if you ask me. But I'm biased toward Giraldi and Hirsch. I know them both, and um, I don't think either of them are liars. I don't think either of them are fools either. Uh, On the other side, the people making the accusations, uh, yeah, liars and fools all around. So see what you think. I don't know. Um, All right, do remind me later. Somebody asked me. um, Oh, yeah, I'll have to prepare for this. Best reads on... Israel Palestine. We should do a hashtag about that and get people to chime in. Um, I have a, a shelf full of books on Israel and Palestine that I haven't read yet, if that helps. But I, I did answer to the guy that I, I read Goliath by Max Blumenthal, and I think it's just perfect. It's incredible. I really, I couldn't recommend it uh, more highly, I guess. Yeah. All right. Um, no Q&A on Stitcher since 424. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Sorry. Um, okay, Lawrence Wright. You know, I tried to get Lawrence Wright on the show to talk about the Looming Tower before, but he was working on something else and said, too late for that, man. I'm done. Um, but maybe someday. Um, okay, so this guy says, can you please debunk the theory that U.S. foreign policy is largely, largely driven by the petrodollar system? You know, I'm not so sure I can debunk that. Here's my best shot at debunking that. Bob Higgs doesn't believe that. Bob Higgs says that the fact that uh, oil is priced in dollars is actually negligible in terms of propping up its value, in terms of motivating other foreign governments to use the dollar as their reserve currency or any of that. It just doesn't add up. doesn't make sense to him at all. On the other hand, uh, there are those who... um, well, I mean, you can just look right at and see, you know, never mind the denomination of oil sales in U.S. dollars, but just for a minute, just look at what they do with the dollars that we, the, the American people, spend on Middle Eastern oil. They reinvest it in the U.S. in government debt and in weapons from arms manufacturers. So that, you know, they keep enough for coke and whores and fast boats and Lamborghinis and stuff for the princes and enough for internal security forces to try to prevent revolution. And then the rest they give back to the U.S. And so, um, you know, we get to have lower taxes because they are uh, buying U.S. bonds. You know, whatever. We're, we're getting subsidized somewhat. Um, the U.S. government certainly is, and I guess even the American people, are being subsidized a little bit by the recycling of those petrodollars. Those who work for the arms industry certainly are. Um, So there's a lot of motives of certain individuals. Um, That's the thing. There is no real, like, Snoke who rules it all, the, you know, the war system at the head of the table. It's all just a bunch of varied cooperating and competing interests supporting this empire and sucking off of it. And so, you know, our... Is, is that policy extremely important to Lockheed, for example? Absolutely. Is it extremely important to the very existence of the U.S. dollar and dollar hegemony in the world? Maybe less so. Uh, but I know a guy, I met a guy who is an intelligence officer, a uh, fan of the show, friend of the show, 
who he was over there in, I don't know, Qatar or Bahrain or Saudi or one of those, uh, you know, Middle Eastern countries with uh, American bases there. And he was there when after 2008 and the crash, there was talk of maybe doing a market basket of currencies to be the new reserve currency. And that what they would do is they would have, you know, some Chinese yuan and some Japanese yen and some Russian rubles and Israeli shekels and some European uh, Union euros and some U.S. dollars, too. And that they would have this sort of different kind of a market basket of currencies. And then according to this intelligence officer, I know, um, U.S. military intelligence, I guess, I don't know which branch, I guess he is in the Air Force. I think it's okay to say that. And... um, and he said, oh, yeah, no, the Americans came to town and they said, yeah, you're not going to do this or else. And don't make us threaten you specifically with else, but it'll be really, really hot and highly explosive. And that was the end of that, that they were told in no uncertain terms that don't you even think about it. So, you know. I guess I would recommend if you're a third world despotism and you've been more or less getting along with the Americans lately, you should probably not diversify out of dollars. They might put a hit out on you. All right. Um, So let's see. Oh, and then, man, I'm way behind on this. This guy says, hey, give me an update on the fundraiser for Will Griggs' family. Boy, am I behind on this. Well, um, as you know, Will died on April the 12th. they actually raised, I can't believe it, they raised $47,000 out of their $50,000 goal. And you can find out more at GoFundMe.com, medical support for Will Grigg. You'll see the name A.J. Ellis on there if you want to search that. Uh, A.J. Ellis, I can personally vouch for him. Uh, he is a good guy. He is a friend of Will Grigg's family and uh, is very close with Uh, Will's two oldest children, I guess all of them, but Will's two oldest sons are both college age, young adults, and, you know, they have full confidence in him and him, them, and all that. So um, this is, you know, yes, trust me, the official fundraiser for Will Griggs' family. He did die with six kids. And I'm so pissed off about this. I can't believe this. I think about this every day. Will Grigg being dead. That sucks. Um, but um, if, uh, yeah, if you got money, you know how it is, especially you libertarians with your uh, advanced understanding of marginal utility. If you got the money to spare, then they need it. Um, and his wife is uh, is sick and disabled as well. So his widow so, yeah, they certainly do need your help. They're going to keep needing it, not just right now. So if if you have Will Grigg on your mind and you have a little bit of money to spare, I think that'd really be great if you could look into how to help them out. It's at GoFundMe.com slash medical support for Will Grigg, and then there's just dashes between all those. GoFundMe.com medical support slash medical support for Will Grigg, but make sure and use hyphens there between all those. Um. All right, you know, I'll try to put a link on the blog entry for this thing, too. All right, um, let's see. Can I have Kiriaku on again? That sounds interesting. I should, uh, I should read his new book. Um, 
Let's see. For the Q&A, a lot of people in the liberty movement, including Stapleton, say Chelsea Manning's leak was wrong and put soldiers at risk indiscriminately leaking info was mentally unstable. Well, I think Manning is, if you follow Manning on Twitter, I quit, but is clearly a very flaky, kooky person. But I don't care about that. The leak was absolutely heroic. And Secretary of Defense Gates admitted that no one was harmed, no American soldiers or assets or anybody was harmed from that. The prosecutors had to admit at Manning's trial at the court-martial that it wasn't true that anybody had been killed. All that stuff was just secret and confidential level stuff. The Iraq and Afghan war logs, they proved massive war crimes in both of those wars on the part of American soldiers and on the part of the forces that they're putting in power in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Uh, the State Department cables are the basis for, I don't know, probably 10,000 stories that have been written since then. I mean, if you just put in Google News, State Department cables or WikiLeaks, and just look at the results over the last seven years, there's, you know, literally probably over 10,000 news stories have been written based on the revelations in those uh, documents, all of which make America look horrible, none of which are justifiable. None of which you can say, oh, boo-hoo, you make America look bad, but actually we were just being heroic in that situation. No. In fact, as part of uh, how Obama, who did try to stay in Iraq, got kicked out, was, and I guess if you think that's a bad thing, then boo-hoo for you, but what happened was one of the Iraq war logs was about the Americans murdering an entire family, executing them all in cold blood, including an infant, maybe more, but certainly at least including one infant, and then calling in an airstrike on the house to try to destroy all the evidence. But the airstrike hit the wrong side of the house, and all the bodies were discovered anyway, and all the locals knew what had really happened, and all the locals knew that the Americans had gotten away with lying about it for years, and then the war logs came out and admitted the truth of the whole thing. And so Bradley Manning may be a, a total flake in every way, but who cares? And in fact, the well, I'll go ahead and add to this. Um, they say, oh, Manning only leaked because Manning's a flake, because Manning is having identity crisis issues and all of these things. But in fact, the story is, as uh, Manning explained to the rat that turned him into the feds, that he was being made to participate in uh, basically the kidnapping for torture of Iraqi citizens under the color of law, including one guy who had been arrested only for writing an essay for the newspaper called Where Did the Money Go? about the democratically elected and instituted government that America had created and was supporting there. And this guy had written an op-ed, like exactly the kind that you would be happy to see in any newspaper in the United States of America, in any town in the United States of America. Where did the money go, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Governor, Mr. President? Where's the money? That's journalism. That's fine. And yet this guy was arrested and was being was going to be taken off to the torture prison. And Manning tried to intervene. And Manning said, hey, boss, I'm, they're trying to get me to uh, book this guy. But I had my translator translate the thing. And all he did was he wrote this newspaper op-ed. And his commanding officer told him to do it anyway. And so he was being made to participate in a conspiracy to torture an innocent man. And so that was his motive. 
He said at the time. And if you go back and read the chat logs, the rat, uh, Lamo, says, hey, why don't you try to sell this stuff to the Russians or the Chinese? I bet you can make a lot of money. And Manning says, no, no, man, are you crazy? I don't want to do that. This is all because I want the American people to know the truth so that then they can make the right decisions democratically and do reforms and make the world a better place, man. You know, exactly Thomas Jefferson and the free market of ideas and why we have a First Amendment in the first place. It's not why we have free speech. It's why we do have a First Amendment, though. Is because the people who wrote the Constitution at least saw the value in that and in protecting that. There's pure whistleblower motives in every way and, and incredibly positive results in every way. And for Stapleton or anyone else to look at the Iraq and Afghan war logs or the State Department cables and say, no, we don't have the right to know that. We shouldn't know all that stuff is crazy is laughable. It's completely freaking ridiculous. Are you kidding? We'd be better off without knowing how Hillary did the coup in Honduras, without knowing how Obama put pressure on the Spaniards to not prosecute Bush and Rumsfeld for torture, to not know that the Marines massacred a bunch of men, women, and children just because somebody uh, lobbed the bomb at them and they were afraid. And so they did nothing but kill civilians all the way back to base. We don't have the right to know that. You crazy? Mm, that's just crazy. I don't know what else to say about that. Joe Sacco's comics. No, I don't know anything about comics. Uh, libertarian health care plan looks like repeal every single law about health care in America and let the free market take care of it, dude. The free market will take care of it. Why in the world would you think you need the government all the government does is drive up prices and make you dependent on them to subsidize your prices, to intervene in the economy. Let the insurance companies force the in insurance companies into a battle royale to the death of open competition. Open entry to an open market. And let them fight. The fact is there are probably 50 million American laws about health care. Or 500,000. Or I don't know numbers of health care laws. But still. The whole thing is the most screwed up market. And you know what? Even if you're a socialist. And I know Brian. I know that you're a progressive. And uh, you know we don't see eye to eye on everything. But you got to understand man. That if you're just talking about a free market capitalist system. That at the end of the day. The owners of the businesses, no matter how badly they treat their employees, they are the slaves of their customers. And it's the consumer who ultimately wins. Okay. But once you make a market, a political question, then who has the power? A business owner or his customers? His unorganized customers. Now, the businessman the businessmen, they use politics to secure their profits at the expense of their customers. Now they are the customer, the customer of political power. And so now everything is done in order to, the whole market is skewed to guarantee the success of the supplier rather than the consumer. 
And in capitalism, we don't care when suppliers go out of business. We don't care when the whole factory line is fired, and we don't care when the boss shoots himself and jumps out the window at the same time because of the bad decisions that he made. I mean, in a way we do. But I mean, in the scheme of things, they're not important. What's important is the customer. And if the business goes under because all their customers went to someone else who's doing it better and cheaper than good. And that's how the free market works. It ain't magic. It's just a set of processes. You know what? It's just like when you hear a born-again Christian say that, yes, yeah, science is a bunch of lies. Science is out to get us. And you're like facepalm. Science is just a process. Science is not a set of beliefs. Science is not a set of beliefs. Science is a process for trying to figure out what's not true. Right? That's what the market is. The market is a process for trying to figure out where goods and services need to get going. That's it. That's the deal. So, the free market will take care of it, dude. It's the same thing when I ask you, are you really for abolishing all the prisons? And you say, yes, of course. Well, what's your plan, Brian, for getting rid of all the prisons? The answer is, don't worry about it, dude. The free market will take care of it. Trust me. <laughs> It'll be fine. And, all right, this has gone on too long. They're asking me about Somalia now, and this is just going on too long. Um, oh, I'll answer one more. Why do I use words like we when I'm talking about the government? Give me a break, language Nazi. First of all, I'm about the best on that issue out of everyone because I'm not a collectivist, and I don't talk like that. But occasionally... When the English language dictates a collective pronoun for whatever action or activity, then yeah, I might use it and boo-hoo for you if you don't like it. That to me is like a freshman year libertarian criticism. Hey, I just turned into a libertarian a week ago. How come you say we and us instead of them every single time without fail? <laughs> Give me a break. All right, good. All right, more Israel-Palestine questions. I'll do another one about Israel-Palestine soon. You know what? I'm going to interview Ramsey Baroud tomorrow, and I'm going to ask him to recommend a bunch of books about Israel-Palestine too. Jeez, now they're asking me about the Iran deal. I have to get back to the Iran deal. India, Pakistan. Jeez, guys, I didn't realize... Um, I didn't realize how many Q&As there were on Twitter here to get to. But there are a lot. So I'll... Um, I'll do another one tomorrow. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. ScottHorton.org for the stuff.